Okay, welcome back to Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. My guest today is Christina Greer, someone who's been on the podcast before, so I think a lot of you already know her. She is a political science professor at Fordham. She's the author of the book, Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. She hosts two different podcasts, one FAQ NY or New York, which uh, is a news and political podcast that she also does with our friend Harry Siegel, um, and then another one called The Blackest Question, which is a trivia show on black history, but to me... Her most important role of all is that Christina is a member of the jury of the Gotham Book Prize. Um, so we're going to yes. quickly talk about books and then pivot to, to politics, which is what I think probably the listeners want to hear you talk about. Um, but uh, tell me who, what book you nominated this year for the prize and, and why. Well, uh, let's see. I'm, I'm trying to look at the bookshelf, right? Uh, there's the, the book that all of us are interested in, um, Stories from the Tenants Downstairs. Uh, and just for more diversity, uh, I also nominated uh, Big Girl. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and Bradley, I just think that what you and Howard have put together is just such an important recognition of books that talk about New York past and present, and then in some cases future. Um, and it's just a delight to read, uh, not just fiction. I mean, you know, in the past, we've, we've had books that are nonfiction. Last year, yeah. the winner was an, a nonfiction book. Yeah. You know, books on poetry. You know, so many of these um, awards are, are so limiting, right? It's it's just fiction or it's it's just nonfiction. Here, it's it's really you've put together a, a interesting, diverse group of folks intellectually, um, demographically, and we all care and love about New York in different ways. We have different expertise. And we just, we get to read sort of the newest books and, and have a great conversation about them. So I'm really excited. T- tell me, for both Big Girl and ten- Stories from the Tenants Downstairs, what did you like about them? Uh, Stories from the Tenants Downstairs, it's just, it feels like a great cross-section of New Yorkers. Um, it feels authentic. It feels um, genuine. Sometimes with these, with books like that, uh, you can kind of feel like an author has an agenda or some blind spots and it, it just feels like um, a genuine accounting of like a real love of the diversity of the different types of New Yorkers that come through. And right. And on that, let me just, you know, it, one of the things that blew me away, the author a guy named uh, Sadiq Fofana, he's actually a public school teacher in New York city. So really if, if he should win, uh, I think someone who could probably really benefit from, from the prize itself. Is it the, the, book, it, it all coheres together into what you could have called it a novel probably, and that would have been fine too, because um, all the stories end up sort of flowing into each other. But he wrote from different perspectives in terms of age, generation, all these things, and yet they were all worked, right? They all mm-hmm. felt exactly, it's like you would have believed that this chapter was written by a, a young woman, this chapter was written by an old man, this was written by a middle-aged person. Like, it just, I don't think I've ever seen before someone capture so many different voices so effortlessly. Well, I think, but isn't that New York, right? Because as as different as we are, I mean, this is, you know, your neighbor, the Tenement Museum down the yep. street from- Which you're on the board of as well. I, I, I am left on it the out board. Of, your bio was too long and full. To, right. To yeah. No, <laughs> nobody needs to read all that bio. But you know what? What I love about the Tenement Museum being your neighbor and the history of, you know, P&K is that- with the Your Stories, Our Stories project that we have at the museum where people can upload an object that represents their family's immigration or migration story, what we find is that even though people are from all four corners of the earth, the stories are the same. 
You know, it's like you're uploading your grandfather's, you know, pocket watch. I'm uploading my grandfather's pocket watch. You know, you might be uploading, you know, your great grandmother's silk scarf. I'm uploading my great grandmother's silk scarf. I mean, there's or a dictionary or, you know, a passport picture, whatever it may be. So as diverse as we are in this city, it's this interconnectedness of like these similar stories, which we're all trying to tell. And I think that book captures that really beautifully. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And what about Big Girl? What'd you like about it? Um, you know, I just think that uh, a book that s- sort of centers uh, not coming of age stories, but, you know, I know this is going to sound wild, but the book somewhat reminds me of the TV show Girls that people had very visceral reactions Good against. Good and bad, yep. Um, and, you know, my very first op-ed that I ever wrote was uh, for Time.com. I essentially wrote an op-ed that said, I love the the show girls as a black woman. I love the show girls. Um, and I thought I'd get a lot of backlash, but you know, essentially so many women aren't taught like about that gray area of maturity and growth. Um, and we just sort of have to stumble and figure it out. And then we're supposed to just be like self-respecting wives and women in society. And I just thought that this book kind of grappled with, uh, race and gender and a city in, in just really poignant ways that it kind of harkens back to just a lot of women being in this city and trying to figure things out. Got it. So I think we're all convening on April 13th or something like that to vote for the winner. Uh, we'll actually get to do it in person for the first time ever now that we've got no more COVID and PNT Knitwear to meet at, and then we will announce it. So, uh, yeah, thank you again for, for being part of the jury. All right, let's let's pivot to the thing that you and I are both Right. And did I say P&K? Yeah. I meant P&T. P&T, I, I, I knew what you meant. <laughs> um, and because we are, I should, in fact, I should have said, we are recording from PNT Netwear, 180 Orchard Street in Manhattan. Uh, please come and record some podcasts or buy some coffee or even better, some books. Um, so politics. You want to start with city, state, or federal? Hey, let's just go city, state, then federal. Cool. Zoom on all, out. All right. So <laughs> Eric's been in office now for 13, 14 months, 14 months, I think, actually. Um, how's he doing? You know, uh, I disagree with the mayor on quite a few things, but I think he's doing all right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously he campaigned on crime and he's he's trying to get that under control. Uh, I think he's trying to, you know, grapple with immigration and, you know, it seems like everyone is kind of stretched to the limit, either emotionally or financially. Um, and so this is not surprising. You know, I've done research before, like this is when we tend to get black mayors when not saying that cities are in crisis, but when they're either facing a crisis or things are kind of strained. I don't think it's a coincidence that the, the four largest cities in America have four black mayors yep. uh, when we're struggling with, you know, sort of the vestiges of COVID and, and sort of the financial backlash of all of that. Uh, and I think he understands the city. I was telling someone the other day, I was like, listen, of the 9 million of us who are here, I think Eric Adams is in the top 10 people who understand the city. I'd put myself, I'd put you in like the top 1%, which I think is a pretty- Yeah, that, that's fair. That might even be generous. I think that's yeah, fair. Okay. Like the top 1%, that's a lot of us. Um, but I'd put him in the top 10 people. Uh, I think he why. understands the limitations of white liberals and progressives. I think he understands the needs of like the diverse classes of black people. So, you know, there are a lot of black people who are defund the police folks and there are a significant portion who were give us more police, or we are the police, or my husband's the police, um, or I'm a civilian in the NYPD. I think he understands that. I think, you know, the fact that he didn't bother 
really campaigning on the Upper West Side, Upper East Side, and like the five neighborhoods in Brooklyn that every single candidate spent tons of time in. He's like, you know what? You guys aren't going to vote for me. And I get it. I'll convince you or I won't. But like he went to other parts of New York that oftentimes get ignored uh, and erased. And so he understands, I think, the five boroughs of the city in a way that de Blasio didn't and definitely in a way that Bloomberg didn't. Um, well, there's, there's, I mean, being a beat cop on the trains, on the streets, yeah. like, I don't really know what could possibly give you, it's a, it's a specific perspective, but you are really seeing everything. You're seeing all of New York. And I think that yeah. he understands the fact that New York isn't just the voters of these five or six neighborhoods. Now, do I disagree with, you know, sort of his foundation in the NYPD? Yes. Do I want him to fund the NYPL and not? you know, hyperfund the police. Yes. Do I think that um, he could do more for uh, our immigrant populations that are coming in? And with the constraints, obviously the federal constraints that exist. Yeah, it's a tough situation. Yes. But I do think that, you know, when you know, Harry and I talked, Harry Katie and I talked about this on FAQ last week, you know, he talks to a lot of smaller press outlets. You know, he's he definitely has, you know, sort of some antagonistic relationships with the mainstream press. But I like the fact also, though, that he he talks to smaller press outlets, you know, ethnic press, uh, people who normally don't have access to the mayor, which I think speaks to, I mean, his political instincts are some of the sharpest. Yeah, and, and I would say good comp strategy, right? Because we, we know that, one, the public doesn't get all of its news now from three TV networks and six mm-hmm. newspapers and two radio stations, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it, there's a much more diverse array of, of news sources. Two, you know, you probably have more polling on this than I've seen, but you know we know that when you ask people about their trust in the media, the answer is it's very low. Right. My guess is if you said, okay, what about this Haitian local paper? What about this weekly Queens newspaper? Like, if you started segmenting it off into things that are more specific, I think the trust is probably a little higher. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I yeah. mean, this is why I write a weekly column for the Amsterdam News because I believe in black media and black press. And that's where a lot of people still get their news. You know, there's a reason why it's still a print publication and not just online because a lot of, you know, older New Yorkers aren't, I mean, the digital divide is real and they're not online. So I think his instincts are right. What I do know is this, as much as I disagree with Eric Adams and, you know, he won't come on our podcast for a host of reasons, but I do think that he genuinely cares about New York and New Yorkers beyond just the egotistical, I want to do well because I want to get reelected. And I think that he's interested in problem solving in a way that I don't think de Blasio was. I think that de Blasio kind of got in and it's, uh, it's our fault that we didn't challenge him. I challenged him. But you know, for (laughs) when he was running for, for reelection, I think that, you know, his democratic supporters should have done a lot more um, to push him beyond just, you know, pre-K and 3K, but like, what are you doing? Because he seemed totally disinterested totally. in being the executive of the city. So it's still a little early. I still am also very clear about the constraints that black mayors have, especially in non-majority black cities. Um, but if I had to give him a grade, uh, you know, I, I do wish that he'd sort of, you know, speak to the press a little bit more in, in, in lengthy conversations and lay out some things. I'm not a fan of Phil Banks. Everyone knows that. Um, and I think that that's just a, a bad, a bad apple to have in your inner circle. 
Um, Let me just, for the listeners, Phil Banks is the deputy mayor for public safety. He was a top official of the NYPD. Um, He did run into some different scandals, uh, but is close with the mayor, and the mayor appointed him, and it's definitely been a little controversial. And I think people who are inside of the system would say that because our police commissioner is so young and so new, that in many ways Phil is sort of overseeing the department. Right. And she's also, you know, she's from Long Island. So, you know, there's this outsider quality that I think, you know, strategically that Eric Adams kind of likes, you know, having sort of been uh, an ally and an antagonistic character in the NYPD himself. So, you know, there's certain characters around him in his inner circle where I I sort of question the judgment because at a certain point in time, you know, words of a feather. But there's a loyalty aspect to Eric Adams that, you know, as someone who is loyal to friends and colleagues. I, I get in theory. I just, you know, as a voter, I'm like, here we go. Um, but if I had to give him a grade, I'd say like a B minus C plus, like realistically. I'm going to text City Hall, some people there later and say, what grade do you think Christina would have given you? Right. <laughs> and then let's, let's see. Where, <laughs> I, I suspect they might be pleasantly surprised. Um, all right. So let's, let's move up into state. Um, Kathy Hochul had a candidate hmm. for chief judge or not justice, I don't forget what the title is, of the state of New York. And Hector LaSalle would have been the first Latino chief judge, um, seen as sort of a reasonably centrist guy. And forget about the merits or demerits of LaSalle. I've never met the man, so I don't know either way. But to me, the remarkable thing is something that was normally just considered the purview of the governor, you know, confirmation was just sort of a, a formality um, the legislature blocked it, uh, blocked it in committee, and then called a full vote in the Senate and blocked it again. What do you make of that? And then if you were advising Hochul, what would you tell her to do in response? <laughs> oh, I've got thoughts on that. So I was so surprised that she nominated someone without getting all of her ducks in a row. You know, this is, to me, it was a rookie mistake. It's like, Nancy Pelosi yourself, Kathy Hochul, make sure that, you know, before you go to the fight, you already know who's in the fight, you already know how you're going to win the fight, and there are no questions about the fight. The fact that she assumed that he would get out of committee was an incorrect assumption. I'm not even in Albany, and I could have told you that there were going to be some hiccups, not just with, you know, certain um, uh, opinions on, you know, abortion, which I think were inaccurately reported by, yeah, by those certain were folks. Unfair, I thought, yeah. Um, but you know, some of his, uh, possible leanings when it came to, um, uh, what is labor. the word I'm looking for? Not labor, labor and also criminal justice. Okay. Um, so criminal justice was something where it's like, if you're looking at the composition of the committee, you would think that some of those legislators and senators, senators specifically would have some real questions for him, not pro forma questions, right? I'm thinking about, you know, Zellner Myrie's a lawyer. So like, let's not pretend that he's going to like skim the portfolio and the brief. He's right. actually going to read said brief and he knows how to read a brief, right? And so the committee itself, I was like, Andrea Stewart-Cousins put that together. She's not new to this. Kathy Hochul, you're kind of new to this, not Andrea Stewart-Cousins. So this idea that if you could get him out of committee and reply and rely on Republicans, Seems a very Cuomo-esque strategy, which I don't think is the best strategy for a new, a relatively newly elected governor to try and to bank on. If I were advising Kathy Hochul, take the L and move on. She refuses to take this loss. I mean, she's slowly but surely, you know, walking it back. But 
you know, she was really intent on fighting for this. And it's like, you're not going to win. Like sometimes you just have to recognize like your ego wants one thing, but it's going to be another thing. And I think that she got outmaneuvered by the Senate. I think that she didn't want her first sort of big nomination to be a loss. So she doubled down. He's not the right candidate. And when you have lots of, you know, prominent Latino leaders saying we want him, you also have a significant portion of Latino leaders saying we want a Latino, just not this, not any old Latino. We don't think that he would be the best for uh, our community, but also New York writ large. Take the loss. Find somebody else. It's not like we have a dearth of qualified Latinos. Like if you want, and I know that, you know, she has to pick from a particular pool, but you pick from the wrong pool. You pick the wrong candidate and you got to move on. Um, right. And so, so now you're advising her that you're saying move on. Let me throw a different thesis at you and see how you react to it, which would be, okay. and this is, so, so when I was the deputy governor of Illinois, we, A, my boss was a psychopath, Rod Pogoyevich, but also <laughs> um, we had a speaker, a guy named Mike Madigan, who was basically the, the Irish Shelley Silver. Um, mm-hmm. And in his mind, it was all about power. Um, and he was going to sort of show us who was boss. And we had a three-month budget overtime. And Rod, for all of his flaws and all of his craziness, A, loved to fight. And B, understood that this fight was existential for the rest of his governorship um, because either he establishes himself as an equal to them or Mm -hmm. he's someone that can get pushed around and then it'll never end. Because Hochul's in year one of her first elected term, um, and there's no honeymoon at this point, it seems to me that, okay, you you made a bad pick in LaSalle, you lost, move on, but – I would argue you got to retaliate. I mean, you've got to show all these individual members that, look, um, the the only person that you listen to is not just Hasty or Stewart Cousins. Um, The governor can do a lot to you that's good, do a lot to Mm -hmm. you that's bad, and you have to exercise that power and you will get attacked all over the place for abusing power. But as long as what you're doing is legal, um, I would argue the attacks are actually helpful because what you want are legislators and people in the system to see – don't fuck with me. If you do, it's not going to be cost free. Um, right. Would you advise her to take that route? Well, it's, for this fight, it's a little late. It's not saying that she can't do that, but like, let's be clear. Kathy Hochul's a shark. We get it. You don't get to become governor of New York, you know, being sort of this yeah. like, oh, I'm, you know, a grandma from Buffalo. Like, granted, <laughs> you were opening Quiznos before you, you know, had to become governor after Andrew Cuomo implodes. But like, let's be clear. She's, she's a sharp one. We get yeah. it. But you lost this one. So you gave them the raise before you got what you wanted, right? And then you want to call people and try and bully them after the fact. Nobody's scared of you. They're used to dealing with Cuomo. So they're used to dealing with kind of maniacs who call and make threats. So either you have to go hard in the paint like Cuomo. If that's not you, then come up with a different strategy. You know, get some carrots and sticks. But like your stick isn't as wild and unwieldy as a Cuomo stick. These people in in Albany are used to dealing with, you know, some really inappropriate bullying power plays. So whatever she's trying, I think she needs to develop her own style. You know, for me, I was like, I don't understand why you gave people money without getting what you wanted. Like, and maybe, you know, it should have been, I'm giving you this raise, but let's not hear a peep about my nominee. Like, we are doing some quid pro quo. Like, this is what we are doing. She didn't do that. So it's like, here's your money, here's your raise. And then I'm going to circle back and hope that everything's cool in the gang. And it's not. So I think we also have to remember that the shadow of Cuomo is still 
very large in Albany. A lot of people have dealt with that type of behavior. So for Kathy Hoka to try and like, you know, roll up, no one's taking her seriously, not just yet. So I don't know what she needs to do, but I don't think that that's particularly the strategy that she needs to employ Cuomo style because there's not a stomach for that anymore. So she needs to figure out her own way to get what she wants. Yeah, it'd be interesting to almost study what happens when you have governors or mayors that replace people with a Cuomo-esque mentality mm-hmm. and reputation and, you know, h- how should their strategy differ? Um, you know, if if they can't, because it, because the person, they can't out crazy the person they replaced. Right. Um, what does that mean? I've sort of, I mean, I think when people, when staff come into office, they sort of obviously are weighing the dynamic from the previous administration, but I don't think that's sort of been studied or talked about in a larger scale. It, it would be pretty interesting, I think, to actually do. And what's really interesting as well, in addition to that, is that there is a gender dynamic. So already you're going to have yep. people who view her differently because she is the first female governor of the, the state of New York. Um, and how women wield power is perceived differently. Trust me, I know. I've sat in these meetings, right, with yep. people tearing up because I asked a question, literally. Um, so we we know that, you know, if Andrew Cuomo were a woman, he'd be labeled as hysterical and, you know, um, it wouldn't be abusive, but it would just be like, you know, completely unfit, you know, mentally, emotionally, spiritually unfit for this job. If Kathy Hochul tried to employ some of those similar Cuomo tactics, it would not be seen uh, as professional in any capacity. Uh, and there'd be much larger questions about her fit uh, as governor of New York. All right. So let, let's bump up to the national. We're now in the cycle for the presidential. Um, first question, uh, will Biden run for re-election? I think so. Should I mean, Biden listen, this man is wins on wins. Yeah. Um, should he, you know, I don't want to sound ageist. I really do like this idea of passing a baton, but it doesn't seem like political parties are really interested in that. Um, human beings are interested in right, giving right. power. I've got all this power. Let me give yeah. it away. Um, you know, listen, Joe Biden's 50 years of experience as an elected official clearly are, you know, that experience is showing itself in, in a myriad of ways. Uh, being 82 on Inauguration Day is, you know, less than ideal. Um, you know, he's not the best orator, so that sort of makes people think that there's some cognitive things going on. Um, but I mean, he's he's steadied the ship in a way that I think has surprised a lot of Democrats and independents and even low-key some Republicans. Um, if he doesn't run, the melee that is the Democratic primary is going to be insanity. But I think he will run. Yeah, I'm not, I, th- I think so too. And I don't know, right, so let's say he decided, okay, I'm not going to run. You'll have 25 people like we saw in 2020 run for the nomination, but none of them jump out at me as, oh, this would be a better person to take on Trump or DeSantis or, or whoever the Republican nominee might be. Biden already beat Trump. Uh, again, I'm not sure Trump will be the Republican nominee, but yeah, you know, there's, sure. there's not some like amazing person waiting in the wings that's being kind of held. There's not a Barack Obama out there. Right. No. So I mean, people are trying to make Westmore a thing. It's like, slow down. He just got there. Like, right. we don't know this cat. And yeah. he's never held elected office. Um, you know, I think a lot of people just get fascinated with like 
articulate. Wes has a great story. He's a sure, great, very charismatic. Like, he's all those things. But yes, he's a brand new governor. Brand new. You know, there's Gretchen Whitmer, you know, Gavin Newsom. I'm like, I don't know, Gavin. Like, just, sometimes you got some baggage, Gavin. Get it together. And I know that, you know, we we as Democrats tend not to elect people from, you know, west of the Rockies. Like Kamala Harris is the first in, you know, modern history. I mean, we, we're, we're kind of a, an East Coast crew. Um, so that would that could be a heavy lift. I don't know. I mean, there are lots of other people. But we also know that every single random white male senator and governor who's a Democrat, would jump in the race. Why not? Fortune favors the bold. Like Barack Obama showed us that, you know, you don't necessarily have to wait in the queue. You never know what's going to happen. You know, a lot of us thought it was just obviously going to be John Edwards in 2008. Uh, And then, you know, it turns into Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama. And a lot of folks were like, well, obviously it's Hillary Clinton. Like it's hers. It's her job. And it's like, well, not really. So I think if Biden doesn't run for whatever reason, no one is going to let Kamala Harris roll up into that nomination. Yeah, um, some people all. like Newsom have already said if Biden ain't running, I'm in. So right, I and I mean, you know, Kamala Harris will have that that quintessential problem that a lot of people, Hillary Clinton, had it to a, to a certain extent, which is anything great that Biden did, she'll say we did it. Anything that you know fell short, it's like, well, I wasn't the president, you know, I was the vice president, I I wasn't in charge. Right. So you know, you're kind of straddling that sort of. I want to take credit for the successes, but I want to distance myself for the, the lesser policy proposals. So in analyzing the likely Republican field, um, are you one of those ready to anoint DeSantis or do you think there's more to play out here? No, I think there's a lot to play out. I mean, yeah. let's be clear. Donald Trump is going to dig up every report card and miscellaneous, you know, he doesn't have his same arsenal that he had before with people to sort of do the dirty digging. But, you know, he's not going to go quietly. I mean, his ego won't let him. Um, And DeSantis is, you know, I think way more dangerous than Trump because I do think that he's smarter. I do think that he reads. I do think that he understands history and American people in a way that Trump is like, Trump is very instinctively very good at politicking. DeSantis isn't great at politicking, but he's really good at sort of these hot button divisive issues um, and the the politics of white grievance. He's he's good at it in a different way. you know, Nikki Haley, nobody's thinking about you. I mean, you know, she's just kind of, I don't know why she's here. But I think that they'll be- Our producer, Hugo, who is has a very uh, big crush on Nikki Haley, is, is uh, gesturing that's, angrily. That's completely- Oh, really, as, Hugo? As you like white supremacists? Because that's what <laughs> no, she is. Um, <laughs> Christina, I have, to, I, have to, I have to defend myself here. I just have to, for the purpose of the podcast, I've appointed Bradley- um, her campaign manager, just within the context of our podcast. Like, what would you do with this, like, super out-of-the-money candidate? How would you get them into contention? That's all. But just to be clear, I, I've never raised her name once on this podcast. He finds a way to bring her up Well, all because the I, time. Like this, I like this thematic thing we have going. I know, and, and you know, you've offered her some decent advice. I don't think she's taking it. I don't think it. she's taking it, yeah. I watched her video. It was terrible. Just absolutely Well, I mean, terrible. you know, what I find – why I have a, a specific disdain for people like Nikki Haley and Andrew Yang is because I think that they uphold the banner of white supremacy. Um, and I think that their immigration narratives of these like good, my parents were good immigrants is a really dangerous um, rhetoric that they traffic in. And so we all know that you don't need to be white to uphold white supremacy, same way you don't need to be a man to uphold patriarchy, Nikki Haley. Um, so I don't like this kind of, I'm a person of color, so, like, obviously, America's great because look at me, but also, like, my family was kind of, like, perfect, so that's why we're good immigrants. 
and ignoring the ways that the Republican Party is like super damaging to immigrant communities and poor people, especially. So it's like, well, we weren't them, so we're acceptable. And I think what they traffic in is is just as dangerous as a Ron DeSantis. Um, but because they're people of color, it doesn't seem as uh, as dangerous. But I think it's equally as dangerous, if not more. Let me throw an idea at you that's a little crazy, but that's the kind of stuff we like to talk about on this podcast, okay. which is, so we know that Trump is constitutionally incapable of ever accepting or admitting defeat, right? Mm-hmm. He will always allege that whoever beats him cheated in some way, shape, or form. Um, what if you were to create a third-party ballot line, and at least in states where you didn't have the sore loser laws that would prohibit him from running on another line, encourage Trump to stay in the race and run the general election? Because to him, what you're saying to him is like, you're going to avenge your defeat, and you're going to prove that you were right, and all the shit that seems to work in his head. And at the same time, it clearly significantly splits the Republican vote. Um, so even if he's taking 10, 5, 10% away from DeSantis in some key states, that's probably enough to make mm-hmm. a difference. Um, if you were team Biden, would you be encouraging that? I wouldn't necessarily be encouraging it. I mean, I, th- I think as a democratic strategy, that definitely does help the democratic candidate. Um, you know, it's kind of like the Ross Perot situation where Ross Perot didn't win any uh, electoral college votes, but you can see in key states that George H.W. Bush had a stronghold, you know, Ross Perot got 19 million votes during that 1992 election. And definitely, if he weren't in, you know, Bill Clinton would not have won. Um, so I, I see that as a strategy. I think what's what's interesting before we even get to that possibility of a third party is that when Republicans are having this conversation, I was talking to my colleague Jason Johnson about this, you know, because all of these Republican candidates supported Donald Trump's crazy theory that the election was stolen, Donald Trump can now look at all of them and say, well, you already said I was the rightful uh, heir apparent of this this race. Like, I, I am the winner of the 2020 election. So why are you running? Because I should be in office. And so I should be in office since I since it was stolen from me in 2020. Then I need to go back into office in 2024 because you said that it was stolen from me. Like you agreed with me. So Nikki Haley said it, Tim Scott said it, like all these characters, Ron DeSantis said it, all of them said that the the election was stolen. So now it looks like they're hypocrites um, because they're running against the rightful owner of the seat. And so it'll be curious to me how they detangle themselves from uh, such a full-throated support of these election theft conspiracy theories uh, to now saying, well, I should I should be in the seat, even though it's rightfully Donald Trump's. Yeah, it'll it will be fun to watch. All right, l- last question. Except for we're on the crazy train. Like, yeah, it's oh, not yeah. as fun. Like if we were a different place, it's like, oh yeah, they're insane. It's like, no, no, no. But right, we're train. on the train with them. Yeah, we're on the tracks. I think. Um, all right, l- last question. So uh, for people who have enjoyed your perspective here, other than your book and your podcast, if they said, okay, Christina, recommend something for me to read, watch, listen to, what would you recommend? Ooh, well, there's a really short, um, short piece that Jane Jun, a colleague of mine, wrote called "Hiding in Plain Sight," and it's just it just shows you some data from 1952 to I think it was published in 2016 uh, about white women and how they voted for the Republican Party candidate every single presidential term except for 64 and 96. Um, that will help people sort of detangle some of this gender divide that we think we have. It's like eh, no. It's not actually that confusing. White women vote for Republicans. Black women just sort of vote for the Democrat 
uh, candidate in such great droves, we sort of pulled the, the gender data. Um, what else would I recommend? Um, I would recommend, hmm, there's so much. Um, Lizzie Gottlieb has a new documentary out called Turn Every Page about her father, Robert Gottlieb and Robert Caro yep. uh, and their 50-year editorial relationship. I've heard that's great, yeah. It's not just about, um, you know, the power broker and, you know, writing of the power broker, but don't forget, Robert Caro wrote those four volumes on LBJ, my favorite president, and he's working on the fifth, but he's not rushing himself. Are you, uh, I'm worried he's going to die before he finishes. Well, here's the thing. He's like, it might happen. Robert Gottlieb is like, it might ha- I might die, right? Like, but we don't want to rush the quality of the product. We're not going to put out this fifth volume just because I'm 86 and he's 90. Um, so, but there was the the documentary has a lot about LBJ, which I just think kind of situates this moment that we're in in a very fascinating way. And I, I mean, listen, 86 is you know not not young. Um, well, Joe, Joe Biden's a young man compared to that. Yeah, I mean, listen, the septuagenarian octogenarians. Uh, in in Washington D.C. is is definitely a conversation. You know, as I try and get my students interested in running for politics and running for a political office, I mean, you know, they they're looking at you know folks who are just like how like how you know I don't am I supposed to run against you know like um, we're talking about Diane Feinstein, eighty nine years old, you know, um, yeah. who's just kind of been bullied out of office, but like. I mean, only because, you know, three different people said they were going to run against her. But, I mean, you know, I reminded people, don't forget, that's how Cory Booker became senator. Because he's like, I'm not waiting. Frank, (laughs) beat it. I don't know. You can run if you want to. But, like, you're one million years old. So, um, what else? What else am I interested in? But I assume you've been to multiple times to the LBJ Library, presidential library. Yeah, you know, I haven't been as many times as I would would like. I've only been once. Um, It's one of those places that you can, I've probably been five or six times, and I like it. Every single time I learn something new. He's like, to me, he's a fascinating character. And, you know, I have, my students have to have two favorite presidents, one living, one deceased. So LBJ is my all-time favorite president. Yeah. And my favorite living president is Jimmy Carter uh, for a host of reasons. Well, living just, is, we're talking a matter of hours right. at this point. Hey, yeah. come he, on. He may, he may not be living by the time this podcast runs. I but know. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet Jimmy Carter. But, you know, someone who really, I think, took the role of the presidency seriously. Uh, and, you know, the reason why I have them sort of, think about who their favorites are is because we recognize that these are flawed individuals. So like, you know, when I tell people I love LBJ, folks who appreciate the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, Immigration Act, you know, housing and poverty, they're like, oh yeah, right there with you. If I say that to a Vietnam veteran, they disagree with me fundamentally. Right, my father Um, would disagree with you. Would would fully disagree with me, right? And so, you know, recognizing that none of these presidents were perfect, you know, FDR, people love FDR. And it's like, really? Because those Japanese internment camps and turning away like millions of Jewish people, like, okay, FDR, like you got some blind spots, friend, to say the very least. So Jimmy Carter wasn't a perfect president, but I do think that what he did with his post-presidency, um, you know, in sort of this idea of housing uh, that we talk about a lot on the podcast and um, how so many Americans are housing insecure, um, is just my respect level for him is, is great. Awesome. Christina, how do people find your work? Um, well, you gotta be careful online cause you know, the mega folks, it makes them very angry, but, um, you can listen to <laughs> FAQ NYC. So FAQ. Which is a great NYC. podcast by the way. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And we're part of the city. Um, yeah. they've been great supporters of us. Uh, and, and Katie Honan is now the third heat that we brought in. Um, and you can, 
wherever you get your podcast, the blackest questions, you know, my argument is black history is American history. And so it's, you know, kind of a game show and you learn a lot. Um, the questions start off easy and they get pretty difficult, but you know, it's, it's to recognize that there's a lot of our shared collective American history that we just don't know because it's black Americans who have been sort of pushed to the margins of history. There we go. Dr. Christina Kerr, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you.